When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Dana Works Blue edition. It's Wednesday, May 10th, 2017. On today's show, American Gods is the stars adaptation of the Neil Gaiman novel about belated and depleted deities on modern American soil. We'll discuss it with uh, Gaiman fangirl Laura Miller. And then Killers of the Flower Moon tells the improbable but true story of a Native American tribe who overnight became the richest people in the world, uh, thanks to a discovery of oil, only to be targeted by a serial killer. We're joined by the author of this remarkable new nonfiction book, the New Yorker writer David Gran. And finally, Dove Soap has introduced a series of plastic bottles in the shapes of women's bodies. Is this admirable corporate open-mindedness or whoppingly misguided and condescending nonsense? Slate's own Seth Stevenson will help us puzzle this out. We're joined by uh, Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg. Hey, John. Hey, Steve. Great to be here. Great to have you filling in for Julia Turner. And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Greetings, Stephen. American Gods is the 2001 novel by Neil Gaiman. It took a long and winding path to limited series TV, where it has ended up at Stars. It tells the story of an ex-con and a widower who is hired by a mysterious huckster named Mr. Wednesday. The show doesn't tell you uh, why at first, and so neither will I. We'll get to it. The show stars uh, are Ricky Whittle as the ex-con named Shadow, and the scenery-devouring and wonderful Ian McShane is Mr. Wednesday. Let's listen to a clip. Seems like a firm decision made for good reasons. I can respect that. A man gets out of prison, he should concentrate above all on not going back. Oh, don't worry about me. I've got an eye for these things. Just the one when I can see that you're not used to the fresh air, but I don't see the joy of being out. Also, oh, you lost something vital in there, not just time. What should I call you if I was so inclined? Shadow Moon. Oh, my boy, that is one outstandingly improbable name. Shadow Moon? Moon Shadow. Goddamn hippie parents. Hippie parent. Mama had a big afro, huh? Dancing queen? Yeah, she had the whole kid. And if I was inclined, what might I call you? What's today? Wednesday. Hmm. Today's my day. Let's go with that, huh? Thank you so much, darling. All right. Well, we're joined for this segment by Laura Miller, the books critic for um, Slate. Uh, Laura, welcome back to the show. It's great to be with you. Laura, uh, Neil Gaiman is a writer that you admire, I take it, and American Gods uh, especially. Talk a little bit about him and the book and maybe why it was a a troubled journey to uh, the small screen. 
Well, I'm not entirely sure why it took so long, because it seems like material that's really well suited to television. But uh, I reviewed uh, American Gods when it first came out, and then later when there was a sort of director's cut version of the novel released. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm very familiar with it. It's a very beloved novel by a very beloved writer. And he began writing graphic novels. His Sandman comic series was groundbreaking in its use of the visual and a kind of narrative sweep that was mythic and remarkable, even in within the comic book realm. He's mostly moved on to novels now. Uh, he's known for his children's books like Coraline, and um, which was also made into a movie. But American Gods might be among, you know, it's a favorite among his fans. Um, so I have to admit, I haven't read American Gods. I know you have and admire the book. Talk a little bit about um, uh, about how this works as an adaptation of that material. It To me, it seems the ideal adaptation. The story is a little tricky to explain, but once you get the hang of it, it makes perfect sense. And it's kind of a little bit of a, of a form of puzzle TV as, as Willa Paskin calls it. Um, I don't think I'm giving away too much when I say that shadow who is this ex con who's hoping to get back to his wife and then discovers the week that he's being released that she has died in an automobile accident. He sort of falls into this underground world, underground society of sort of down on their luck gods. Every god that anyone has ever believed in on American soil exists as a person in this story. And some of them are doing better than others. And um, and so as a result, you have Egyptian gods running a funeral home in Cairo, um, Ohio, which is obviously pronounced Cairo in when you're in Egypt. And because the Egyptians were so obsessed with the funerary arts, this is the sort of what they resort to in order to make a living because no one really believes in them anymore. And Mr. Wednesday is trying to rally all of these old gods to fight a gang of new gods who are basically technological media globalist sort of modern and sleek and soulless. And he's, he, he enlists shadow to help him in his travels across the country, digging up all of these sort of seedy gods in their crappy boarding houses and trying to get them to join in this campaign. I mean, I found it very, it, it, it's a little, I watched the first two episodes and as someone unfamiliar with the book, I was disoriented, wasn't sure where I was going, you, you know, and, 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 uh, but now that you explain it and give it that context, I actually think it's a better television show in a, in a way than the one I was experiencing in real time. I will say that the first two episodes, it's sort of just getting on its feet. And the third episode is where it really becomes an amazing visual and storytelling experience. The The third episode has a couple of vignettes. There are these stories that are sort of unrelated to the main Shadow Wednesday story that show the fates of various gods and mythological creatures in their disguises in the U.S. and their encounters with various people in America. 
Uh, and these little vignettes always begin with the line somewhere in America. And in the third, the third episode, there are two vignettes in particular that are very powerful and beautiful and moving. And I would recommend that anybody who's giving this show a chance stick around for that third episode. I guess since I've only seen the first two, maybe what I'm about to say will be completely eviscerated by the first three minutes of the third episode. But I found found this show insanely hard to follow. I mean, going in without any knowledge of the book or anything, except that, you know, it's a Neil Gaiman story called American Gods, putting together the fact that they were these seedy, down-at-heel gods that were spread throughout America took me the entire first two episodes to do. And I mean, I think Stephen will be familiar with this from previous TV show discussions we've had, but this show has essentially everything I hate in <laughs> in a TV series. It's, it's uh, deep mythology to the max, right? I mean, there's just non sequitur after non sequitur and scene after scene introducing a character that you don't get yet who they are or what their significance is or what they're going to do. And so you really have to sit through a lot of those threads being put out before they start to braid together in any way. In fact, I haven't witnessed much, much braiding yet over the first two episodes. It's also... I would argue, and I hope this isn't true of the book, I don't think Laura would love it if it was, but it feels portentous and humorless to me as well. Some of the situations are sort of ridiculous or grotesque or outsized in a way, but there doesn't seem to be much actual wit or, or lightheartedness anywhere in the fabric of this show. I Yeah, that's not how I would describe it. And, and part of that is that the original novel takes as its premise that the sort of hard-boiled noir type story of the 40s and 50s noir, noir movies is a kind of root American mythology. It's sort of rooted in the Western and the sort of loner character trying to make his way in the world and he, you know, he gets beat up a lot. That's basically who Shadow is. And I think you get a little bit more of the flavor of that in the novel because it has more of that hard-boiled tone in the parts about Shadow. The actor who plays Shadow, while extremely good-looking, is not, you know, the most... He's kind of like a, uh, a you know, like a blank sort of straight man quality, has that quality, as opposed to a kind of a, uh, a, a kind of wisecracking, uh, kind of slightly cynical tough guy, which is how I imagined him more. Laura, one thing that I'm curious about, given that I, too, have not read the book and was as disoriented as Dana and Steve seem to have been, um, is that I, I gather both from um, cue, uh, clues in the in the show and from what you said at the top of the segment that there's this what seemingly interesting um, underlying idea here, which is that um, let's sustain the old gods uh, faith, uh, the faith of the believer has been um, – uh, diminished by technology that, that, you know, in, in the world today that, you know, the constant nagging of our phones and of text messages and, uh, tabs in our browsers and, and everything else, streaming films, uh, on our smart TVs, uh, you know, we no longer have the same time and, uh, and, um, 
uh, space for for the old gods, and that seems like kind of an interesting uh, framework. Uh, and I was wondering if the, if that is something that gets developed more as the story goes along. And also, it was interesting to me, like the book came out in two thousand one, if I'm not mistaken. And to, in some ways, it seems like the world has come to that story even more in the intervening sixteen years. And so it's maybe kind of interesting that this show took its long path uh, to being developed for for the screen because if anything, technology is even more in our heads than it was way back in two thousand one when you know barely smartphones uh, existed or if they existed at all. Yeah, that's very true. That's, I think, the the heart of the novel is the idea of these sort of older organic gods being threatened by these inorganic, modern, sleek, sort of substanceless creatures. The the depiction of the sort of god who represents technology, who is called the technical boy, is, I think, does, is a little bit dated. You know, he's like your classic idea of a of a of a nerd who is power mad, you know, it's like a right, a nihilistic thing. teenager kind of. Yeah, yeah, which isn't it's not necessarily to say that there isn't a, still a lot of that on the internet. But now, of course, everyone's on the internet, and it has a slightly different flavor than it did in two thousand and one when we were completely surrounded by. Well, if we lived in the Bay Area, as I did, we were completely surrounded by people who were kind of like that, who were constantly telling you that everything old was going to be swept away by all these fabulous things the Internet was going to do for us. So it it, it felt more fitting at the time. I mean, the one thing I would say that I, I'm not crazy about in this show is that I do feel like the 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 violence, the sort of it's very operatic use of violence feels a little adolescent to me. So probably people who don't care for that, like Dana may never really like it, but I still think you should watch that third episode, Dana, because I think you might really like the vignettes. Yeah, I think I will. I mean, there is one goddess that I like. I like watching when her story comes on and I think you, you can imagine who it is. It's the love goddess who I think I can give this away because it's in all the reviews of the show who uh, after making love with her victims that she goes out and finds um, usually on the Internet. I get the impression she literally consumes them by way of her vagina, which sounds much more kind of disgusting and also special effects dependent than it actually is. And the way that those scenes are filmed are a very loving and seem to be very affirmative of the enjoyment of the sex act on both sides and actually also use this great what I think is sort of practical effects, forced perspective to make it look as if this person is is shrinking and disappearing into the the goddess's nether parts. And, uh, and I thought those parts were actually wonderfully done and didn't have the kind of let's gross out teenage boys excess that they could easily <laughs> right. have had that all the gore scenes have. And to throw in two words so our listeners get an idea of what that adolescent gore feels like, Zack Snyder, the way he films Very action so. and violence really, really reminds me of the film director Zack Snyder of the 300 and other comic book-based movies that are all about, you know, slow motion process shots of limbs a flying and you know gore spurting and that's the first scene of the entire series is is that right. like a 300 style uh, battle you know staged by vikings that, that sort of for me set a tone of like oh god am i gonna have to you know subject myself to many flying limbs over the next two hours yeah and uh, you do there are a lot more flying limbs like that which is why i was pleasantly surprised by the i think kind of feminist hotness of the uh, the love goddess scenes i I had one sort of like larger question that I'm curious to hear you talk about, Laura, which is, does this, does the book and or the show have something interesting to say about America? It like, you know, it has 
America in the title. It seems very interested in uh, various sort of American tropes. You mentioned the hard-boiled uh, detective novel, which is a distinctly American trope. It seems like it's a road movie in a lot of ways as well. Um, and then there's also just this idea of America being a place uh, where there's so many, it's a nation of immigrants and therefore it is a nation of many, many gods uh, sort of coexisting. Um, and so it seems to me just based on the first two episodes that it has the raw materials of a project that could have very interesting insights about America and perhaps even ones that are timely given our wrestling with immigration as a public policy issue right now in the Trump administration. But I haven't seen enough or read enough to know whether that all coalesces. And I'm curious if it does. I I think it does. I mean, I've only seen the first four episodes, um, but the both of the characters in the vignettes in the third episode are um, from Arab countries. And, um, there's there's a kind of a way that the that the story encompasses all of these different types of immigrant experiences and at the same time there is a scene where mr wednesday says um america is the only country that doesn't know what it is i don't think that's necessarily true anymore but you know part of this whole idea of the road movie or this sort of wandering hero is you know the way people go looking for america there is this way that they're they're kind of trying to do that or they're trying to assert something about the the legitimacy of these old beliefs in America and as the story evolves it, it was this is a book that was written by an immigrant himself Neil Gaiman is British and it's part of his attempt to when he moved to America to sort of figure out what the place is all about it, it does m- move towards a different understanding of what America is, the, the novel does. It, it's something different than what we're seeing in these first handful of episodes. All right. Well, the show is American Gods. It's on stars. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. And you have totally convinced me to uh, <laughs> dig into episodes three and four. <laughs> please, please do. I, I urge everybody to to stick with it th- into those episodes and to to sort of be aware that that of what the premise is it i think it it must be really confusing if you don't know it it's so familiar to me that that i just was thrilled at every single new development but obviously i knew what they all meant so superb all right thanks for coming on thank you all right well before we uh dig in any further dana do we have uh, some uh, business to deal with We do. We have a bit of business that's very exciting. It's May, and that means, as longtime listeners may suspect, that the Summer Strut playlist is on its way back. This is something that we do every year where we compile a group of songs that, in Julia's words, make you want to strut down the street on a warm summer day with your sundress foaming about your knees, like in MacArthur Park, which was, I believe, on one of our lists last year. So if you want to contribute your ideas to the Summer Strut playlist, they don't have to be new songs. They certainly don't have to be explicitly about summertime fun. They're just the kind of music that make you want to enjoy a warm day. And how you contribute, you can post on Facebook. We'll make a a space there for you to add your own song titles to the thread with links, if possible, would be great. Or you can go on Twitter. Our, our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest, and using the hashtag Summer Strut, make your song suggestions there. Our intern Daniel will compile them, and we'll listen to a whole, whole bunch and come up with our favorites for a show later on in the summer. 
And on Slate Plus today, at the very end of the show, the segment for Slate Plus subscribers, we will be talking to John Swansburg about Stephen Colbert's controversial joke last week on The Late Show involving President Trump and Vladimir Putin. You've probably heard something about this joke and the blowback from it. And uh, even though it's a week late, we still think this, this Stephen Colbert situation and this joke is worthy of unpacking. So that will be our Slate Plus segment. As you know, Slate Plus members not only get bonus segments like that from all of your favorite Slate podcasts, you also get the podcasts ad-free. And now happens to be the best and easiest time ever to try the Slate Plus service. You can get it free for 90 days if you go and download our new iOS app at slate.com slash app, and you'll get all the benefits of Slate Plus free for three months. It's a brand new app, and it's by far the easiest way to test out those bonus segments and ad-free podcasts. See if you like them to subscribe. So go get Slate Plus by trying the app free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. All right, Stephen, onward. The Osage Indians suffered more or less the same fate as other Native American tribes. They were slaughtered, exposed to disease, dispossessed of their land, and even their very identity. In the final tally, they had ceded 100 million acres to the United States of America. But one thing you could say about them, about 100 years ago, they owned the land under their feet. It was considered sterile and valueless. But then oil was discovered And virtually overnight, the Osage Indians went from being among the poorest people in the world to the richest per capita in the world. And then they began to be murdered one by one. Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI is the new nonfiction bestseller from David Gran. He, of course, is the staff writer at The New Yorker who wrote The Lost City of Z, now a major motion picture. And he's a special friend of the program. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back on the show. David, there are so many elements to this story, and they fit together so beautifully, it's hard almost to know where to start. But um, talk a little bit about the status of the Osage Indians around the turn of the last century. Um, It's not only that they were poor and dispossessed, it's that they were straddling civilizations, centuries, and cosmologies. They, 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 uh, They were existing in many worlds simultaneously and confusedly when they became uh, unthinkably rich. Yeah, so um, the Osage had once uh, controlled much of the central part of the United States, all the way from basically what is today Kansas and Missouri to the edge of the Rockies. But like so many uh, Native American nations, they were uh, driven off their land. They were bunched up into a reservation in Kansas uh, in the 1860s, when once more they were under siege by white settlers. And it was at that point that a Osage chief uh, stood up And he said we should move uh, to this territory in what was then Indian territory, what would later become Oklahoma. And he said, just as you said in your introduction, that it was infertile, it was rocky, whites considered it worthless. And so he thought uh, the white people would finally leave us alone and they would be happy there. So they bought this land. They actually had a deed to it and they resettled in what would become Oklahoma. Um, By then, the the migrations and disease had taken a tremendous toll on the tribe. Their numbers had dwindled to just a few thousand. Uh, And then, of course, lo and behold, um, this seemingly forsaken land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil uh, in the United States. And that, of course, unmoored them uh, very much from their traditions. Um, and in many ways, they did, as you said, straddled uh, two civilizations where they were still practicing Osage traditions, but also often intermarrying with whites, uh, living in mansions. Um, it was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. Unbelievable. And and it, I mean, it unmoored not only the Osage, but white consciousness of the Osage. There was a kind of racial panic, a white panic 
uh, a panic among white people over the sudden wealth of the Osage, which was extremely hard for them to uh, process. So even absent the murders, there was an enormous amount of press about uh, the Indians and um, and how they had essentially upended uh, a, a racial hi- hierarchy with this new hierarchy of wealth. Yeah, belied all these longstanding stereotypes that could trace all the way back to the first contact with whites. Reporters with kind of prejudice and envy would travel out to Osage territory and regale their readers with stories about the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage and the red millionaires would describe how they lived in mansions and then they had servants who turned out to be white. Um, and the Osage was so amazing and just kind of shocking was that this was the during the 1920s. It was the area of the Great Gatsby, um, and somehow the Osage were scapegoated for their wealth. And members of U.S. Congress would actually hold hearings. I mean, you can read these transcripts; were just unbelievable. And they would debate, "What are we going to do about these Osage with all their money?" And they went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians um, to manage their wealth. So you could be a Osage chief who had millions uh, in your trust and lead a great nation. And yet you would have a white guardian who could be telling you, you know, you could get this car or get this toothpaste at the corner store. It was a literally racist system because it was um, it was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full blooded Osage, you were deemed incompetent and given a white guardian. And of course, it wasn't only racist, but it it created a criminal enterprise in which many guardians took kickbacks. They skim money. They embezzle millions of dollars. One of the things, one of the ironies that I thought was really interesting and, and learned about from the book is that um, it wasn't just dumb luck that the Osage landed uh, with this with this wealth. Obviously, obviously, it was luck that they landed on land that uh, possessed those oil reserves, but they negotiated a really, really uh, prescient and smart arrangement with the government that gave them access to that resource. And and um, so this idea that, that you know, the Osage had sort of inherited this massive wealth and needed to be treated like children and have their every $10 parceled out is, is uh, you know, a, absurd on its face, uh, given how savvy they seem to have been in their negotiations that, that led to that wealth. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, they were very shrewd. At the time, they were led by one of the greatest chiefs, the guy who spoke seven languages, including Latin, French, and Sui. And um, they, at the time of allotment, which was basically this policy, this brutal assimilation policy that the U.S. government enforced on Native American tribes, where they would break up the communal way of life, force them to become private property owners, which, of course, made it easier to procure their land. During those negotiations, the Osage negotiated really hard, and they managed to slip into their treaty agreement with the U.S. government, a provision that seemed at the time very curious, which was that they would maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to their land. And they succeeded in getting this in. And so what that did is they they had some sense they had some oil. And then when more oil was discovered, it gave them access to this uh, enormous fortune, which was theirs. They had purchased the land. And what's more, as you say, they had very shrewdly managed to uh, make sure they held on to it. Well, let me jump in here quickly. I just want to say that the, among the astonishing things about this book is that everything we've just described is still backstory to the actual story in a way. Um, and what makes the book, David, work so beautifully, I mean, it, it is elegantly um, and cogently told, given all these many elements, is that you decided to begin with and focus on the story of one Osage woman named Molly Burkhart. Tell us a little bit about her and why she ended up being the kind of keyhole through which we get this astonishing world. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank. Yeah, I I think for uh, for a few reasons. I mean, uh, sh- she's a remarkable woman, a really astonishing woman who, like many of the Osage at the time, straddled uh, two centuries and two civilizations. She was born in a lodge in the 1880s. Um, she was forced and uprooted from her life to go to a boarding school because the U.S. government made her go to a Catholic boarding school. And within a few decades, she's living in a mansion and she's married to a white settler. And in the early 1920s, she and her family become a prime target of this criminal conspiracy. In in May of 1921, uh, Molly's older sister, Anna, disappears. Uh, Molly looks everywhere for her. And a week later, uh, Anna is found in a ravine. She's been shot in the back of the head. And within days, uh, Molly's mother uh, grows um, mysteriously sick. And within two months, she has died as well. And evidence would later suggest she had been poisoned. And on and on it seemed to go. And she had another sister named Rita who lived nearby. And uh, one night, Molly heard a loud explosion. She gets up from her bed and she goes and looks out the window and where her sister's house had been, all she can see is this orange ball rising into the sky. And somebody had planted a bomb under her sister's house, killing her sister and everyone inside it. Um, and one of the reasons I focused on Molly, because she was at, this, at the center of this conspiracy, but also in previous accounts, she often was no more than a sentence. And the Osage perspective and point of view was really ignored and neglected. And um, you know, within the limits of the evidence I could find, you know, through historical records, I thought it was very important that she be the center of the story. Uh, David, something I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, we've talked a bit about um, the Osage and the way they've sort of they're sort of straddling two worlds. But one of the things that's totally fascinating about this book is that there's kind of a mirror to that element in the sense that law enforcement, the people who are trying to uh, figure out what happened and to uncover this criminal conspiracy are also kind of um, straddling two worlds. They're characters who sort of grew up in the kind of high noon Old West way of uh, solving crime kind of at the at the end of a gun. Uh, and then but you're also telling the story of the birth of the Bureau of Investigation later the FBI, and which which is also the story of the discovery of modern, more scientific, more kind of mechanized uh, ways of investigating uh, crimes and using science and fingerprinting uh, to to solve crimes, and and that's kind of happening in this in this story as well, and makes for this this just wonderful um, again like kind of parallel uh, story about the way the world was changing in, in this period of American history. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, they are kind of two. St- tribal communities being thrust together uh, in this case. And in many ways, it is about kind of the emergence, not just of law enforcement, of, of, of America as a modern country. And just as Molly is a central figure in the book, so is a man named Tom White. And he was born around the same time as Molly. Uh, he's a lawman who eventually leads an undercover operation to work on the, on the murders. Um, he was born in a log cabin in Texas, um, at a time justice was often meted out by the barrel of a gun. Uh, he was His father was a, a sheriff. He saw people be hanged when he was just a little boy. Um, he then became a Texas Ranger along with many of his brothers. And then, of course, by the time he suddenly summoned to Washington by J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the new bossman, um, you know, he has to wear a fedora and he has to wear a suit. Um, he has to learn how to do fingerprinting. Handwriting analysis becomes an important part of this case. And, of course, he has to file paperwork, uh, which he can't stand. Um, and so he, in many ways, reflects the transformation of the country, just as Molly does as well. 
David, what's remarkable, many, many remarkable elements of this book, um, we can scarcely do justice to them in one segment, uh, including simply the technique by which the um, uh, culprit, uh, culprits were discovered. But there's another element to this book in a way. I mean, in, in a sense, it tells the story of a miniature genocide, one that recapitulated the original genocide um, by which this country was settled. Um Tell us a little bit about how the Osage themselves have greeted both you and the book. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that was so shocking when I was doing research is that you begin to realize that um, there was a deeper and darker conspiracy that the Bureau never exposed and that there was a much larger conspiracy. I spent my life disproving conspiracies. This was one of the rare cases where there is an actual one and that this was really a less about a story of who did it than who didn't do it. And that there were uh, so many people who were covering up the crimes, who were getting rich from the crimes. And um, so many Osage over the years who I got to know would give me evidence and clues to murders in their families and mysterious deaths uh, to investigate them. And I had the rare privilege of just actually just two weeks ago, uh, going back to Osage County, uh, going to all these towns um, where I did my reporting for so many years. I lived in a boarding house in the town of Bahuska, um and presenting the book to them. And for me, you know, there will be nothing more gratifying than being able to present this work to them. Um, it's their story. It's their history. Um, and they were so wonderfully uh, welcoming um, and had many events in these small towns where I would sign books for hours um, and they prepared a feast up in um, uh, Greyhorse, uh, which is where Molly uh, Burkhart grew up. Uh, many Osage came up, and I presented the book to them. I gave a talk, um, and I was incredibly honored when they presented me with a blanket. So I, one of the one of the reasons this book is such a pleasure is that I feel like this is one of those you know national stories from the 1920s that has fall, completely fallen out of popular memory. I knew nothing of this before I picked up your book. Um, but is the story very much still alive in the Osage community? Is it something that is you know was talked about frequently before you started doing your digging? Yes, I mean the Osage are intimately aware of their history, and I I often tell a story about when I was at the Osage Nation Museum, they had this uh, photograph on the wall that was taken in 1924 with, with white settlers and 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 um, members of the Osage, and it looked very innocent, but there was a part of the picture that was m- missing. And when I asked the museum director what had happened to it, she had pointed to that missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And it turned out to be one of the killers of the Osage and it became very aware to me. This was very early on in the process that she had removed that picture not to forget, uh, as so many Americans had, but because the Osage can't forget. So this is something that still very much uh, is alive to them. It is often very difficult and painful, though, for them to talk about. All right. Well, David, uh, you've written an absolutely astonishing book. Congratulations on its great success. And thanks for so much for coming on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you all. All right. Well, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. It's available at your local indie bookstore. Please buy it there. But if you have to, Amazon will be fine. Dove Beauty products have been advertised for a decade using real beauty campaigns, celebrating the bodies of supposedly ordinary and ordinarily shaped women. Now Dove has pushed that particular envelope even a little further with a series of real beauty bottles, a series of plastic body wash bottles meant to correlate with uh, different women's body types. 
Oh my, some critics note that this is a whopping misstep to help us explore the reasons why. We've invited in Seth Stevenson to join us for our discussion. Seth, welcome to the show. Thanks. Dove, the personal beauty products company and soap maker, for a while now has been interested in posing themselves as the the feminist soap makers, those of us who aren't judging your body and accept all different kinds of female beauty. Their ad campaigns have used that theme for for years now in different guises, but uh, their latest gambit is to actually produce soap bottles that are shaped very roughly in very stylized way, like different female bodies. So there's a long thin sort of, I don't know what you describe it as, a sort of model-shaped bottle. There's a more pear-shaped bottle. There's various um, combinations of top-heavy and bottom-heavy bottles, all of them white bottles full of soap that don't overtly try to mimic the human body, but that still sort of play around with different shapes. And uh, this move was immediately followed by a lot of backlash in social media and ridicule of the idea of marketing soap body bottles that people are supposed to choose to match their body types. And is this such a ridiculous topic that you guys have nothing to say about it whatsoever? I mean, I thought that it was it was kind of an amusing. Oh, I have so much to say. <laughs> oh, good. Well, let's go. I've been writing about, about Dove's Real Beauty campaign for more than a decade. Now. Is that how long they've been doing? Doing it. Yes, wow. the first one was 2005, and I wrote. I, I used to do this column, ad report card about about advertisements. And in 2005, Dove started this real beauty campaign where they had huge, big billboards um, for a uh, a firming lotion, and it was um, women that you might not usually see in their underwear and a billboard. It was like a size 12 woman in her underwear and a billboard, and it, it was real beauty, and it made a huge splash in 2005. And I and I wrote about it, and I had kind of mixed. Feelings about the ad and the piece, and I got more blowback than I've gotten on almost anything I've ever written about advertising from women who adored the campaign and loved it and loved that somebody was making this body positive campaign. Now, I, I had a few problems with the campaign at the time. One was it was like an anti-cellulite firming lotion, right. which uh, Julia Turner was my editor on the piece at the time, and she called it Hocus Pocus Cream um, because, you know, it's it the product itself was sort of... Uh, a, a silly pro. I don't. It's snake know. oil, right? I mean, I lotions so. can't firm your flesh. I have never used an anti-cellulite cream, but that's my impression. Um, and the other thing it was, it was this delicate dance that they were doing because that that kind of ad is is known as associated user imagery. That means we're going to show you the kind of people who use this product, and and you know you want to be like them. These are the cool. These are the kind of people who use this, and you're one of those people. It's that kind of ad, and it's kind of neat because usually beauty ads are models. They're these incredibly gorgeous, beautiful people, and here these were quote unquote, real women who are, you know, different sizes and they're up to a size 12. And so it was kind of neat that the associated user here was someone a little more down to earth. You could associate the thing was this was like the most perfectly proportioned, taut skinned, beautiful size 12 woman <laughs> you've ever seen in your entire life. So it was still aspirational in, in terms of. The, right. She was a plus was size wearing. model. She was not a non model. No, she was still a, a very beautiful woman who we would all hope to look like. Um, but, you know, that but it was it was a clever campaign for Dove. It was it was a way to differentiate a product that, you know, can be a little bit hard to differentiate. Um, and it's been a strong campaign for them for more than a decade. And that's they are now the brand that's about real bodies and real beauty and that. And everybody knows that. And, and I think that works for a lot of consumers, whether it works with this new bottle shape thing I'm less sure about. What how did you how do you feel about the bottles, Dana? I mean, I guess 
to me, they, they seemed in a strange way infantilizing. And I guess that's because the product that they called up in my mind, I mean, in addition to there have been lots of jokes about Mrs. Butterworth syrup bottles <laughs> being your body ideal. And there's the history of, of bottles shaped like bodies goes back away. I'm remembering a Jean-Paul Gaultier perfume from the 80s that was like a corset. It was sort of in a corset shaped bottle. Um, but the products that they immediately made me think of were American girl dolls, which have this option, these very expensive, fancy dolls where a girl can custom order a doll to look like her. Right. So you can get dolls of different races of different, you know, hair textures. And uh, and people go in and get their matching doll for their little girl at this very high price. And, uh, you know, we can say what we want to about matching your girl to her doll. But the idea that a grown woman looking to just cleanse her armpits in the shower <laughs> has to use a similar psychological proxy for herself or physical proxy, I guess, in the bottle she chooses. It just it seemed like something that wouldn't be done to men to me. And uh, and so in that sense, it seemed like the opposite of a feminist move. It seemed it's making you think about your body when you go to the store. Right. It's making you think about its level of idealness or its shape or its difference from other bodies. And maybe, you know, the feminist universe we should be working for or the kind of, you know, post gendered universe we should be working for is one in which you can just go to the drugstore and grab some soap without having to think about where you fall in the uh, the right. And speaking of you know doing this to men, like I I used of body wash and now I'm I'm like puzzled. you're in a quandary. Which one, which one <laughs> of these am I? You know, I also think was thinking about like let's say you were going to 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 the store to run an errand to buy this for a partner or a friend. The horror of, of determining <laughs> which one of these bottles am I supposed to buy? Like, am I insulting you? By I I I feel like that could also pose some problems. It also looks to me just like from seeing the photographs, like some of them clearly function better as bottles of soap to be delivered to your hand to be applied to your body than others. Like the the the, the one that's the most squat that it, like I think to my eye is probably like the the body you probably least want. It's also Careful. like looks impossible. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that's maybe not body positive, but like it's a very short squat bottle that looks impossible to hold in your hand. It's so wide and so Short that I don't I can't, I don't know I can't quite see the dimensions but I don't <laughs> I don't way, think it would they, fit in my they my should have gone hand. more realistic and put love handles on it so you have a way to actually <laughs> hold it it's a packaging problem there but a point that many have made in fact is that the most usable kind of ergonomically pleasant to hold bottles are the ones that go with the sort of Barbie body because you've got a wasp waist that you can grab it around in the middle right. Uh, well, I feel like, you know, this is it's on brand for Dove. You know, it's like I can understand why they would do this, but this is maybe like a, a sort of a, a step too far <laughs> for the brand mm -hmm. because it's like the how, how political is the personal here? Like it's like every morning, like you were saying, Dana, I'm being confronted with this, you know, political thought of like about body shape. And may, I'm sure that some people do like that idea and, and would be excited to every single morning in the shower be thinking about body types and, and uh, but not everyone wants to do that. <laughs> I think they should have gone full on and had like a Venus de Milo, you know, just actually like artistic body shapes. Like you've got your Aphrodite on a half shell bottle. You've got your <laughs> Venus de Milo bottle. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, 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 it's fine. Um, Seth, the question I have for you really is, is it really has more to do with the internal filtration device by which some of these campaigns finally make it before the public, right? Like, I mean, you have one job, right? And the one job is not to offend the public. Like the very first thing you don't want to do is become an object of ridicule 
yourself or make anyone feel as though you are ridiculing them, right? Like, I mean, that's got to be sort of the Hippocratic premise of being in marketing and advertising. How is it that Pepsi, like gigantic, we're not talking about little amateur brands with little in-house you know, marketing committees, uh, you know, how are they fucking up so egregiously? And it only takes until it, it the ad leaks out of whatever their bubble is into the public space and is met with incredulity and ridicule. So they realize they've gone so badly wrong. Is there a trend there? Does it have something to do with being so desperate in a crowded marketplace to differentiate yourself that you have to like envelope push? And so inevitably, we're going to get these total cockups. Sure. Well, you know, Pepsi actually did use an in-house uh, ad team yeah. to make that ad. So, but um, but I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, for Dove, like in that 2005 ad I was talking about, where they put size 12 women on billboards, that was a big risk at that time, and they and they did get a lot of ridicule at, um, along with a lot of praise, and and I think maybe they felt like let's take another risk. And, you know, I also feel like these things get forgotten pretty quickly when you make a misstep. And so the downside risk is not huge. Like is Pepsi? Sure. Pepsi's going to have a bad few months and people are going to remember it for a while. But is this going to sink the fortunes of Pepsi over the next decade? Not really. I mean, I think you you do. You're right. You have to take some risks in order to differentiate. Um, So I think that's why it happens and they're willing to and the thing that if you talk to like ad professionals at the agencies that the hipsters at the agencies their number one complaint is always about how the brand manager is afraid to take a risk and the brand manager is so cautious and conservative if they'd only let me do my you know my provocative new ad <laughs> campaign we could really blow this brand out um, and so I think you know there's probably some of that where the brand manager get, gets convinced by the hipster ad person that that we need to take a risk and and like I said you know Dove, Dove's been taking risks uh, in this vein before and for the most part, they've worked. Oh, and this ad is not a failure on the level of the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, right? It's not like they're going to pull these things off the shelves in shame or well, something. Well, I don't know because we've got a physical product here. This is packaging. This is factories. This is supply lines. I mean, this is different. You you can rip uh, an advertisement off the air instantly, and it's harder to do that when you've got pallets full of soap bottles going all over the world. So I, I'm not sure the level of mistake we're dealing with. Or, you know, it's also to be determined, maybe we might not like it, but maybe it sells like gangbusters. Like we, you know, I've been wrong before when I've assessed ad campaigns. So, you know, it sort of remains to be seen. I was curious to what degree this is even going to roll out because it just seems like from a practical standpoint, are they really, do they have enough shelf space to have like 12 different kinds of bottles at like your average CVS? It almost seemed like more the kind of thing that was meant to be a provocation and that you would see them all together in a photo and we would do a segment about it and Dove would be on your brain. Then it is likely to be something you are going to see at like in an urban you know, drugstore in particular, where there's very little real estate for all these different brands. Maybe they can add insult to injury and um, ship them according to average BMI uh, by zip code (laughs) and really sink their uh, brand image. You know, you're right, John. I, th- I think probably this is like um, a, a we've been tricked again by the giant <laughs> brand, you know, and on that, you know, when we, as long as we're talking about politics and brands and, and, and the president, I think anytime you try to associate this really like positive, progressive idea with a big brand, let's not forget this is this is Unilever. This is a massive Dutch British conglomerate that also sells Axe, which is responsible <laughs> for some of the most like paleo gendered <laughs> advertising in the history of the world. So just before you, you know, are all in for Dove, just get, just think about exactly who's behind this. 
I would be remiss if I didn't like ride my hobby horse a little bit on the subject, which is that um, the very forces that install insecurity in women about their bodies are the same ones that then try to reap a benefit by telling you not to be insecure uh, about them on the other end. Um, if we just take, you know, whether you want to call it capitalism or marketing or whatever you want to call it, that's a relatively unitary force that is constantly signaling to women to think in terms of norm and deviance uh, along an axis of perfection when it comes to their own bodies. And it's only because of that that you can then make a buck off the other end of supposedly forgiving them for for um, not being perfect. Right. And you basically have just described the entire economics of the women's beauty magazine industry and beauty industry, right? I mean, that you simultaneously pump this empowerment and individuation while making sure that your products roll off the line and are duly bought. Yeah, exactly. Well, Seth, since I seem to be working blue throughout all of this week's show, I just have to tell you the image that came into my mind when you're talking about Axe Body Spray is that they should try this differential packaging for men in penis size. <laughs> and everybody gets the jar that right, that, that resembles their own endowment. Oh, my God. Fraught. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, Seth, man, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I'm going to endorse a song, an old song in the American songbook, a song that was written in 1905 for the vaudeville songstress Eva Tangue, who we've talked about on this show. John, you know this well because you edited Jody Rosen's long piece on Eva Tangue. So Eva Tangue was this sort of a, a racy provocateur superstar of, of vaudeville, who Jody referred to in his piece, I believe, as the, the Lady Gaga of her time. She used a lot of shock tactics and very daring clothes for her time and uh, and was sort of, in, a, in her strange, wacky way, a, a proto-feminist, just in the craziness and disinhibition of her stage persona. So one of her big uh, signature songs was called I Don't Care. It was, um, I think, first written in 1905. She sang it for years. She recorded it later in the 20s. And then it became kind of an American standard. Ju- Judy Garland sings it in a musical called The Good Old Summertime, different version, slightly different lyrics than Eva Tangway sang it with. It was also recorded by Mitzi Gaynor and Edie Gourmet and other kind of uh, mid-century songstresses. And uh, this song came into my lap recently because my daughter, based on Judy Garland's performance of it in The Good Old Summertime, decided that she's going to sing it for her school concert. And she has worked up an incredible rendition of I Don't Care, which perfectly suits her own somewhat Gaga-esque personality. And uh, so, yeah, we'll link to a couple of different versions on the show page. But I, I just I love this song because of its long- longevity, the fact that Eva Tangway was able to shock audiences with it on stage in 1905 and that my daughter now in 2017 still feels this kind of feminist empowerment when she sings this song, essentially whose message is, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm going to keep on being the crazy out there person that I have always been. So we'll put a couple links on our show page, but uh, go out on YouTube and search for I don't care. It's a great song. Oh, fantastic. John, what do you have? Uh, I'm also going to endorse uh, an entry from the Great American Songbook, uh, that song being Red, Red Wine, uh, written by Neil Diamond. I'm actually not endorsing Red, 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 Red Wine, uh, written by Neil Diamond. I'm endorsing Hit Parade, the new podcast uh, uh, starring Chris Melanfi, who writes uh, for Slate and other places, but when he writes for us, uh, writes about 
the Billboard charts, and he writes a column for Slate's Culture section about why the number one song in America became the number one song in America. And I really, I swear I was not put up to this. Uh, this podcast is in the Culture Gab Fest feed. Uh, I think it's going to be appearing every um, month or so. It is truly the most fun I've had with a cultural product in the last uh, four to six weeks. Um, this podcast in which Chris tells the story of Red Red Wine, the story that... Uh, uh, a song that I think most people know uh, because of its um, version recorded by UB40 in the 1980s, which is when it actually went to number one. Uh, he tells this incredible story of how it went from being this kind of dud Neil Diamond song that you may have heard on Hot August Night uh, in his sort of more rather uh, maudlin uh uh, rendition uh, and goes to being this kind of weird uh, quasi reggae hit in the 1980s. It's a much more complicated story than even that. Uh, it goes through several iterations. It is a wonderful tale, and Chris expands it out and and sort of makes makes it uh, an object lesson in and how the recording industry was working and the hits factory was working in the 1980s. It's an incredible um, podcast. Uh, it's a story about art. It's a story about commerce and their intersection. Um, it is fantastic. I listened to it during a long drive that. Um, basically vanished from time because uh, my wife and I were so riveted by uh, Chris's reporting and storytelling. It's fantastic. I must listen. Oh, my God. That wow, sounds that's... amazing. And Melanfi, I know when he's on this show, he just he just kills. I mean, yeah, the, the yeah. guy has all of pop music history just coming out of his pores. Yeah. This, I mean, in this story, like I knew the, the broadest contours of I knew that this was a this was a Neil Diamond song because I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan. Uh, so but I always just thought like, oh, UB40, you know, picked up this relic and re-recorded it. And for whatever reason, it hit. It's not that's not the story. It's it's uh, it is there are many more turns of the screw. And um, and the story of UB40 and, and their career in Britain is fascinating. And the story of reggae's uh, penetration in the United States is fascinating. It, it, this is such a multicolored tapestry and woven just beautifully by Chris. So it is an absolute must listen and, and by no means just uh, me plugging it because it's a slate cultural product. Mm, fantastic um yeah love chris and can't wait to hear it uh so um this week i'm going to endorse you know there's certain things that you you're you suspect that you endorse one way or another you know kind of every week on the show and then it turns out maybe you never have so last week we were talking to the filmmaker adam leon uh who made um tramps and his movies really reminded me of the movies of bill forsyth and it occurred to me in his reaction that the, the upcoming generation doesn't know these films, that these films really are in danger of being lost. I mean, Bill Forsyth is really, really well known in England and, and worshipped as a kind of god in Scotland. I mean, in some ways, he's the founding god of, of contemporary Scottish cinema. You know, he made these very, he made a super low budget film in the late 70s called Gregory's Girl, uh, when independent cinema could scarcely be said to exist. It was a complete charmer, and Pauline Kael loved it. It got championed here, and it launched Forsyth at least a little bit in the United States. He made two more imports, uh, one of which, uh, Local Hero, is my favorite movie of all time, a uh, sentimental favorite, but also, I think, in its way, an absolute masterpiece. And Forsyth eventually got picked up by Hollywood. Hollywood tried to make him into an American um uh, you know, a director for the American market, a, a maker of movies in America. He made a bunch. Housekeeping, the Marilyn Robinson adaptation is probably his best known because of the book, really not because of the movie, which in many ways is a failure. He burned out here, went back to Scotland, and has sort of never been heard of again. One of the great experiences of my life was meeting him, which I had always wanted to do um, uh, in Gramercy Park a uh, number of years ago. An extraordinary, charming uh, man, um, and talking to him for hours about how he made those early movies. But um, they shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, especially if young filmmakers want to make small, 
modest in the best sense of the word movies that actually are quite quite deep and important in their way um gregory's girl local hero comfort and joy um to my mind are all extraordinary movies and there's a a unique bill forsyth touch uh and and he and his work do not deserve to disappear so um criterion collection if you're listening you should absolutely put out a film uh films of bill forsyth uh series he deserves to be properly um remembered uh anyway check them out and if you already like those movies or if you discover them through this endorsement come to facebook and tell me about it uh i would love to hear it uh dana as always a complete pleasure as always thank you john thank you so much for coming in thanks for having me uh we should say that this is in its way a kind of um a melancholy occasion a a all the more precious but also melancholy occasion because you after uh 10 years 10 years slate Amazing. You are moving on to become an editor at the Atlantic Monthly. That's true. That's true. Uh, it's, a, it's my last week. It's very, uh, it's very, very sad. I'm, I'm delighted that I got to spend my last Tuesday at Slate with you guys. Oh, man, John, I have to say that really almost all of my most positive um, and also weirdest experiences at Slate <laughs> really are bound up in, in being being right there with you, man, right there next to you in the at Mohonk and... Um, not turning in copy to you. I mean, does yeah. anyone owe you more words than I do? No, not even close. No, I, I, I <laughs> yeah. can't even think of who would be a distant second. So, <laughs> yeah, the, some of my favorite pieces I've never edited are the ones that you've not written. <laughs> <laughs> right back at you, man. I love you, John Swansburg. I'm going to miss the shit out of you. Likewise. As, as will Slate. Can I just add, as someone who's had thousands of words, go through the Swansburgification word improver? That, <laughs> and this, I say this knowing that some of my, many of my Beloved former editors at Slate may be listening, but I think I'll miss you most of all, Scarecrow. You're my favorite editor I ever had. And I still, when I get stuck on writing, I'll sometimes think, pretend you're writing it for Swansburg, and I'll find my way out of a hole. Oh, man. Uh, I can't tell you how much that warms my heart. And uh, if you ever get really stuck, just send it to me. I'll edit it. I love editing. I'll edit anything. You just have to type it and send it to me. Steve? <laughs> uh, thank you dana hilarious. that's incredibly sweet and that that really makes my day oh heartfelt all right love you man uh, we'll be seeing more of you i know love you guys you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page slate.com slash culture fest and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our facebook page facebook.com slash culture fest our producer is benjamin frisch our intern is daniel schrader the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of like and unlike shows, all of them wonderful, at uh, panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for John Swansburg and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. We'll see you soon.